Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Did you know for only $27 per month, you can now gain unlimited access to more than $2,000 worth of resources, courses, and video archives, everything you need to build a better business, be a better leader, and live a happier life as a small firm architect. Join us today for level one at Entree Architect Academy. Learn more at entrearchitect.com. You're listening to Entree Architect Podcast, and this is episode 174. Welcome back to the Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, whether you're in the process of launching a startup, or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, FreshBooks, NCARB, BQE Software, and RCAT. And I'm going to share more about these great companies and organizations later in the show. But as we get started here, just take a quick note to schedule some time this week to go visit each one of them and let them know that their support is appreciated by us, the Entree Architect community. Donna Sink, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's really good to finally be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Donna is a practicing architect at Roland Design based in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, and until our recent move there, which I think was 
pretty recent, like April or so. February. February, February. okay. February, so recent, uh, the last few months. Uh, before that, Donna was a small firm architect owning her own practice right there in Indianapolis. Uh, she was also recently the campus architect at Indianapolis Museum of Art, which is very cool. Uh, and, and she's also very involved in the local arts and design community there in Indianapolis, holding positions as past president and current member at the Indianapolis section of the Indiana chapter of the AIA. Uh, a board member at People for Urban Progress, which I want to definitely get into. That sounds like a very interesting organization. Uh, and a member at the Indianapolis Sign Ordinance Revision Task Force, which is a sort of a, a mundane name, but I'm sure not a very mundane <laughs> position. I think I think that would be a pretty interesting um, position to be on. And listeners of this podcast may know Donna best. If you're active on Twitter, you probably know Donna. Uh, we have a very active architect community on Twitter. Donna's there every day. I'm there every day. Uh, if you're not there, you should go there. Uh, Donna is Donna Sink Arc with A-R-C-H. Uh, I am Entre Architect. Hook up with us and uh, get into the conversation over at Twitter. Or you may also know Donna through uh, her work at ArcConnect Sessions podcast where she's a co-host. So very, very busy lady. Uh, and I'm very, very happy that you're with us here today and sharing some time with us and sharing some knowledge. So Donna, let's start with your story. Let's start with your origin story. So go back to where you discovered architecture, what inspired you to become an architect, uh, maybe who inspired you to become an architect and share that story from, from that point to where you find yourself today. Yeah, I will, I'll start by pointing out that I'm 50 and I turned 50 this year and I've sort of been seeing it as a big, um, you know, a moment to really look at my career, look at my life. Um, so as a 50 year old woman, I can say, okay, I've, I've seen some things, I've done some things <laughs> and they all uh, influence my, well, my congratulations story. and happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah, you it was it. in April. <laughs> um, so I, I have told this story a few in a few different venues and most recently with Mike Rasika on the Young Architect podcast. Yeah, great, um, great podcast. Yeah, which is a, a good one. I, uh, uh, I I came to it through the Barbie method. It's kind of the Lego method. Most people, I think, start with Legos, but I started with Barbie. And I always like to set up, like I remember clearing out an entire bookcase so that I could turn the bookcase into my Barbie condo. And I really loved <laughs> setting up the Barbie condo, the living space, and figuring out where'd her kitchen go, where'd her closet go. And then once that was set up, I wasn't really that interested in continuing the game. I just wanted to do a new condo for the Barbie. So that's how I first got interested in it. And my parents, I think, saw this and um, uh, encouraged me to take some drafting classes, which I really liked the idea of drafting classes in high school um, because I had friends in the art classes and art felt too personal to me. It felt like you were exposing too much of yourself. And as an awkward teenager, I wanted to keep myself a little more reserved than that. So I took the drafting classes and that um, led me then on a, a visit to see my sister who was at the University of Arizona uh, campus. Um, I said, well, yeah, I'll just, look, why not? I'll wander into the architecture school and see what's there. And I walked into the lobby of that architecture building and there was a model of a geodesic dome and I looked at it and said, yep, I'm hooked. That's, this is I'm, what I want to do. I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. I, it, I remember that moment very clearly. And it really was just taking that, you know, the creation of Barbie houses to a, a, le a level that I could, you know, have it as a job. My dad always taught me, do what you love to do so that you're, you're going to your hobby every day, not going to your job. And so I, I really found that with architecture. Um, and I did a five-year Bachelor of Architecture. Uh, 
And then I wanted to go to grad school and I went to Michigan to go to grad school to University of Michigan to start with. That was because I was a fan of John Irving and had read his books about going to spending time as a college student in Vienna, Austria. And so I decided I wanted to go to Vienna and Michigan at that time had a Vienna exchange program. So I did a semester in Vienna, did a semester at Michigan with Dan Hoffman, who was the professor um, in residence at the architecture program at Cranbrook. And as soon as I met Dan, I decided, you know what, I don't, I have a Bachelor of Architecture. I had a five-year BARC. I could get licensed with that degree. And I thought to myself, I want to spend two years in grad school doing what, what Cranbrook is doing, doing these like crazy, you know, much more um, uh, uh, philosophical and theoretical discoveries. So I transferred over to Cranbrook and I ended up getting my Master's of Architecture from there. It's an unaccredited master's degree, but because I have the five-year professional degree, I was able to then, um, go into a standard internship in a great firm in Philadelphia and, uh, and get licensed. Um, so that's very interesting before you go any further. Yeah. So you, so you went to grad school for architecture, but it was a non-accredited program. You already had your, your, your BARC, so you didn't have to worry about licensure. But you did that specifically because you wanted that type of program, because you wanted to explore something for you uh, and and grow from what they're teaching there. My five-year Bachelor of Architecture at University of Arizona was really great for preparing me to practice. I mean, I really came out of that school knowing how to put together a set of documents, how to work function in an office. You know, I, we had classes on what billable hours are, things like that, which I think a lot of architecture schools are not getting right now. So I really did go to grad school and realize, hey, there's a bigger world of theory here that other people have. They might not have what I have, which is these certain very practical skills, but they have something else that I don't have yet. And so I, that, I very specifically said, yes, I'm going to Cranbrook to round out my philosophical attitudes towards yeah. architecture. That's great. Okay. And boy, did I get that in spades at Cranbrook. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's very much, it's a studio-based uh, environment. You're entirely responsible for going into the studio, coming up with your own discoveries and projects that you want to pursue. And Cran- Cranbrook is, is, Cranbrook is all art, right? Music and it's, art uh, it's, and architecture. It's, I, th- I can't remember the exact number of programs now, but I think it's eight fine arts programs and then that that offer an MFA degree and then the one small MARC program. So 15 students total every year. So you're uh, immersed in creativity and art when you're there. And living on the campus, which anyone who has not been to the Cranbrook campus by Eliel Saarinen, the yeah. first Saarinen, it is one of the most beautiful places in the country by far. So I, I highly encourage you to go visit it if, you, if you're anywhere near Michigan, near Detroit. Um, and yeah, so immersed 100% living on campus in the dorms, you know, really living in the studio. At that studio program, um, in the architecture program, we had a kitchen in the studio and we had a great big table where we would have, uh, we would make group dinners all the time. And when we had guests come, I remember once Susanna Torre came to visit and John Hayduck came, um, we would cook in the little kitchenette there in the studio and then uh, have the big meal out at the, the table in the studio. So it was oh, very, very much very living cool. in an immersed life, totally immersed even more so than I had had at a, a typical architecture program where you're, you know, pulling all-nighters all the time. I did that as well. So. Right. I mean, a, a typical architecture program you're all, is already very communal. You're already exactly. building a family there because of how many hours you spend there. But but when you have your 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 dining facility there, yeah. and you know, you, you probably sleep there, and so you yeah. really you really yeah. uh, become a, a true family. Yeah. And the, and the, you know, the, the, another, just this really important thing about Cranbrook, um, and I have several friends who have gone to the program after me and we all agree 
when you live in the dorm on campus and you work in the Saarinen design studio, and then you know you work until three in the morning, and then you walk home for three minutes across campus, across the most beautiful environment you've ever seen, into a Saarinen designed dormitory. You're you're immersed a hundred percent. It came to the point where when you would leave Cranbrook campus, you know it's like being a monk in a lot of ways. You're yeah. you're living in the monastery, you know, and then you would leave campus to go get groceries, and everything just felt incredibly banal. <laughs> what so, a great experience! And and yeah. and you're and again you're there just to be there, right? Yeah. Just to learn the things that you want to learn and focus on, really. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was great, and uh, I met my husband at Cranbrook. He was in the ceramics program and um, we didn't get married for a couple years, but we left together to go to Philadelphia. And I, you know, went straight into a good internship at the firm at that time was called Atkin Olshan Lawson Bell. It's now called Atkin Olshan Shade. Um, And I ended up being there for 10 years. It was a great firm that really helped the young associates come up. They paid for my exams. They were just a great, you know, decent at live work balance. It was a great firm to be in. Um, and I was there for 10 years. I got licensed, uh, along with several other people who had graduated about the same time. And, um, after being there for 10 years, uh, I, uh, my husband, and I had a baby, my husband's job had changed. We were starting to question, do we really want to be in Philadelphia forever? And my best friend from undergraduate school who literally we met on the first day of drawing class, drawing studio and architecture school. He grew up in Indianapolis. He called me and said, I'm so busy. I need a partner. Come join me. Ah, so we, so that's yeah. what brought you to Indianapolis. <laughs> that's what brought me to Indianapolis. We dumped everything, said, yeah, let's go on this adventure and see what happens. So we uh, landed in Indianapolis. My partner and I had a good, um, a good firm doing uh, residential remodel, mostly mostly fairly high-end, a little bit of light-end commercial, some cafes and things. Um, and then 2008 happened. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I, you know, I still, when I think about that, I remember the when someone posted on Archonnect, which I'm very active in the discussion forums on Archonnect, someone posted a thread called something like, have you been seeing any layoffs in your community? Yeah. And it just started rolling. It was like bloodshed, you know, like, yeah, we lost 20 out of 50. We lost 100 out of 130, you know, like firms were just dropping like flies. And it was terrifying. Um, And our work in the residential remodel world dried up a bit. But I was panicked so much by reading this, um, what I was hearing from other cities around the country and the world that um, I uh, got a call from Ball State University to see if I wanted to teach uh, a professional practice course. And I said, yes, absolutely. Because I knew that would be a regular paycheck, you know, right. not much of a paycheck because it's just an adjunct salary. But still, it was something I could rely on. <laughs> so I said to my partner, you know what, we should uh, we need to figure this out. Let's uh, let's put the, the partnership on hold. I'm going to go teach for a while. And um, we both re- ended up writing out the recession well, and we're still best friends, but we, we no longer practice together. He still has the practice and I, I do other things. So I started working on my own and teaching. Um, you know, again, during 2008, we were all just hungry for any kind of work we could find 2008, 2009. And I was teaching, um, pro practice and I was facing these college students about to get their masters of architecture. Yeah. Knowing that they were not going to find a job when they got out, you know? And so I started talking to them in pro practice about, how to be a young entrepreneur, basically. How yeah. do you take the skills you have and do 
t-shirt design or do, you know, design a deck for your aunt and uncle or, you know, any kind of small thing where you could, could use your skills. And I started pointing them to people like, um, John Moorfield, the architecture five cents guy. Yeah. Do you know him? Yeah. Um, and the cool house ladies who put together cool house ice cream company, you know, I started pointing to them to people who were facing what they were facing. You know, I have these skills. There's no work right now in my field. What can I do to, um, to, to survive. Um, and that ended up being great for me because I, uh, you know, I started investigating all these non-traditional ways of doing practice. So, um, I got really interested in that after a while and realizing that, that these were, were students who were not getting any kind of business training in their architecture program. And I felt like that was really a mistake. And so I started pushing a little more with AIA then locally and nationally. I got involved with the, um, uh, emerging professionals group with AIA national and started, you know, asking this question, how are we treating our young people right now? And we're, we're filling their heads with how to do these amazing, you know, rhino models, but they don't know anything about how to run a business. They've, they've never heard the term billable hour or profit, or, um, you know, they just, they didn't know what they were doing in terms of being a business person. So, um, I put together a talk for AIA for a local conference on sort of how to go about these non-traditional practice approaches. Um, and I've sort of rolled with that a little bit since then. Um, you know, how, how do we, how do we practice, especially as young people in this economy, in this world where you and I know each other through Twitter, even though we've barely ever met in, in person, you know? Um, and, uh, and so I would say to sort of roll this, roll this very long intro out. Um, it's been my whole life story at this point. Um, at some point I got an opportunity to go to the Indianapolis Museum of Art in their facilities department as the campus architect. And that was a great four years of being on the client side. Um, and then I really missed practice. And again, I just turned 50 and I just a month before I turned 50 started back into practice here at Roland Design. Um, and from that perspective, before we get into people for urban progress, I just want to say that architecture is a long, long profession. And there's time to wear all kinds of different hats and do all kinds of different things. Um, And that's one of the things I really love about it. But as part of my sort of investigating non-traditional practice, I I came into contact with Michael Bricker, who is the executive director of People for Urban Progress. And that's how I got connected with that that organization. So we can talk a little about that. Yeah, very, very interesting. You are a perfect example of an entrepreneur architect, that somebody that sort of has done many different things throughout their career uh, and has accepted that and embraced that. Uh, yeah. And I think I think the, the generation coming in uh, and the generation that is just starting now, they're coming from that world. You know, they're coming yeah. from a world that entrepreneurism is part of our economy. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, I think the AIA is starting to come around with business. They're starting to talk about business a lot more, especially since you know since since we started Entree Architect when I relaunched it in 2012 as a resource. Uh, at that point, compared to today, AIA is you know light years ahead of where they were. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad they're talking about that. Uh, the internet allows us to do that. Allows us to talk about the things that we're interested in and share the knowledge that we all have. Um, but it's it's great to hear your story and how your career has evolved, uh, and you've embraced embraced all these different positions and 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 the things that you do. Um, I would love to have you come back again and talk about 
um, non-traditional practice and talk about you know how architects can uh, do that. And we're, we can talk about that today as well, but maybe more specifically on how architects can do that. Let's take a quick break here to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, RCAT, FreshBooks, NCARB, and BQE Software. You already know all about RCAT and their free BIM objects and their CAD details and their specifications and product information, all free, ready for you to use. Well, today I want to share something new from RCAT. It's called Charette. Charette is a tool for sharing and collaborating with your colleagues and clients online in real time. You can upload photos and files, share specs and product information directly from the RCAT database, as well as from other sources on the internet. I've been playing with Charette in beta for a while now, and it's really cool. And now it's available to you. I encourage you to go check it out. Visit RCAT online and click the Charette icon right there on the homepage. And like everything offered at RCAT, Charette is a free tool for us small firm architects too. Learn more at entrearchitect.com slash RCAT. 192 hours. You wish you had that much free time? That works out to about two business days every month. And when you're a small firm architect using FreshBooks cloud accounting software, that's the amount of administration time that you could save in 2017. That's time that you can spend doing the things you love, like being an architect. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses automatically, track your time for your whole team by project, and get organized with reports, communication, and notifications. Sign up for a free 30-day unrestricted trial and get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid faster. Visit entrearchitect.com freshbooks to access FreshBooks for free. And be sure to enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Do you know someone in your firm who's always dreamed of getting licensed, but was unable to complete the experience requirements? Well, maybe that person's you. Now you can get back on track with NCARB's new AXP portfolio. With this option, seasoned professionals can complete the Architectural Experience Program, the AXP, formerly known as the IDP, by submitting an online portfolio. Along with meeting your state's education and examination requirements, the portfolio will help you and your employees get one step closer to becoming a licensed architect. Learn more about NCARB's AXP portfolio at entrearchitect.com slash NCARB. One of the most often requested resources here at Entree Architect is project management software. How do we keep our projects and our people organized while we grow as entrepreneur architects? BQE Software, an AIA Advantage partner and the makers of ArchiOffice will show us how. ArchiOffice is the only office and project management software designed specifically for architects. It will help us manage people and projects and allow us to focus on designing great architecture. Whether you're working remotely or on site, ArchiOffice allows you to monitor the status of your projects and tasks and send out invoices in an accurate and timely manner. Entree Architect podcast listeners can get a fully functional 15-day trial of ArchiOffice today at entrearchitect.com slash BQE. RCAT, FreshBooks, 
NCARB, and BQE Software, please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. I think I'd love to know how you got involved with People for Urban Progress, uh, what that is, uh, and how your studies with non-traditional practice led you there. So um, People for Urban Progress is a, uh, a nonprofit here in Indianapolis, and it was founded by Michael Bricker, who is a has a architecture degree from, um, I'm forget, I think it's UT Austin. I'm pretty sure it's UT Austin, yeah. Um, and he had a, got his master's in architecture, grew up in Indianapolis, went to Texas, got his master's, um, came back to Indianapolis and started looking around the city and say, this was about, this was 10 years ago, because we're just about to celebrate 10 years. So started looking around the city going, what are the opportunities here and what's happening in this city? Um, and one of the things that was happening at that point was that our, uh, our NFL stadium where the Colts played football was being torn down because we were building a new one. Um, which HOK, HOK designed there. Yeah. It does. I don't, it doesn't matter. One of those big stadium design firms designed designed a new, designed a new one. Um, yeah, the new one. And so the old one was coming down and the old one was built in the seventies and it was, um, a concrete brutalist structure with an air supported vinyl roof. And Michael being a, you know, young person brought up in a world where we're thinking about reuse and not throwing things away, asked the question of the city, um, what's happening to all that roof material? And they said, well, you know, the contractor is going to do something with it. And he asked the contractor and the contractor, the demolition contractor said it's going to a landfill. And Michael said, you know, that just seems really wasteful. And so he very quickly figured out how to start a nonprofit, found a place where he could store a bunch of material, made a partnership with Keep Indianapolis Beautiful, who is another local nonprofit here in the city. Um, they're national, actually. Keep They're all Keep X City Beautiful all across the country. Um, and found a place to then be able to store 13 acres of salvaged vinyl-coated canvas, which is what the roof was made of. So he kind of just jumped in, like we were saying, what I think, you know, young people especially today have to do is just say, you know, I'm going to leap and the net will appear. And he jumped in, found a place to store the material, got the material from the contractor, um, stored it away, and then started making together with his sister, who has an interior design degree, started making bags and wallets and things and out of the fabric and selling them. But again, they started as a nonprofit. So uh, the the bags started to become very popular because people who are Indianapolis natives or Indianapolis Colts fans could say, you know, this is a piece of the building. This is a piece of the building that yeah, the Colts used to yeah. play in. And so it had a good story and people started buying these bags. And then with all of the profits from the, from the bags, we started doing things. And this is when I came on board is, um, Michael and I met because I was talking to him about doing, you know, non-traditional work as a someone who was trained as an architect. And um, he asked me to join the board at a time when we had the opportunity to do a couple of shade structures around the city in parks. And so the idea of taking what had been a great big roof and turning it into a bunch of little roofs was really appealing to me. So yeah. I stepped in as a board member and gave my architecture skills, including the fact that I'm a licensed architect and could do structural drawings for it. Um, to this this process of making these little shade structures around the city. So um, since then we've expanded out. We there, we've sort of become known as the reuse nonprofit around the city. Um, there is a, uh, a, a 
baseball stadium, a historic baseball stadium. It was a Negro League stadium in the in the city back in the day. Um, it was taken down and turned into well, it was reused into um, apartments. But we were able to salvage all the seats from it, and Michael hooked us up with the local uh, transit authority, Indigo, and we were able to get through sponsorships, people to pay for us to put some of those stadium seats at bus stops around the city that don't have, that didn't have a place to sit. Um, which that to me became sort of, the, you know, as an architect, I think one of the most basic things we can do is give people a place to sit, yeah. <laughs> right? A little bit of shade, somewhere to sit down. Like those are basics of what we do with the built environment. And I love that I can do it through this nonprofit, that we can do that kind of work. So those those shade structures are all over the city? There's a few of them. They're for yeah. various, um, they're public green spaces, but not um, public parks. So yeah. there's a little bit of a, you know, this is one of the things you start to learn if you're an architect who gets involved in anything having to do with city government is, you know, there are certain rules around procurement and um, the ways that they're allowed to award contracts, et cetera. So what we ended up doing was doing them in what are called community green spaces, which are not official city parks. They are green spaces that are maintained by a community organization or a CDC or something like that. So so has, has the entire 13 acres been used up or is it still, oh, no. still going? We've still got, I think, at least nine acres, and we've sold hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of bags. Um, we, we've also worked now into um, connecting, because we're in Indianapolis, we connect with the Indianapolis Speedway, and they are giving us banners from their um, races, so like yeah. the Indy 500 oh, just happened. So cool. So we'll get the banners. We had the um, Super Bowl was here four years ago, and we got this, all the Super Bowl banners. And this is okay. So this is actually a good story. And again, where as architects, I feel like we can have much more of an impact than just designing buildings. When the Super Bowl was in Indy, people for Urban Progress went to the NFL and said, "We want your banners after this is over. We want to be able to take them and reuse them for a good purpose." And basically, because of that conversation, the NFL now has a rule that when a city hosts the Super Bowl, they have to come up with a reuse plan for banners. So this is architects getting in yeah. at the, you know, the level of of material consumption of our community that is not just about doing a building. Yeah, sometimes all it takes is awareness. Exactly. You know, that they, exactly. they, they never even considered that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so what has have has people for urban progress done anything other than the than the domes and the banners or is is there are there other projects they're working on? Well, we are right now um I mean, we've done all kinds of various little things and big things right now. We are actually, we've just sort of undergone a big moment in the organization. We have moved to a new headquarters, um, which is on the west side of Indianapolis, which has not, you know, I think Indianapolis, like most cities, has seen a lot of the kind of downtown development that's happening in across the country. Um, condos and people, you know, moving downtown and lots of great food, restaurant scene, all that stuff. That has really happened on the east and south sides of Indianapolis. And the west side has really not seen any of that benefit, that economic benefit yet. So we have just committed to a um, several year lease in a facility on the west side of Indianapolis, where we're hoping to help start up what sort of a design hub in the city. We, we see ourselves as People for Urban Progress as the nonprofit in the community that is about the design conversation. So we have art nonprofits in the city, we have you know recycling nonprofits, we have uh, nonprofits that help um, 
former offenders get reintegrated back into the community. We have all kinds of various nonprofits around, um, but we see ourselves as the design nonprofit. So we're, we're with this move to a new location, which is on a campus where we're gonna have a couple of other design entities co-located with us. We're really seeing this as the opportunity to, to push the design conversation in our city. Um, and so we're, we're starting to launch some um, conversations. We haven't quite figured out yet what form that will take, but some kind of public conversations about design. Um, we've talked about launching a podcast <laughs> because podcasts really do seem to be a great way to get the word out to people yeah. these days. Um, but we're talking about some uh, design panel discussions, you know, a, a lecture series, um, potentially a designer in residence, someone who could come and, and stay at our location for six months, you know, as a as an indie design fellow, more or less. Um, so we're just sort of starting those kinds of programs. Um, in the meantime, the you know the creating the bags and doing the the design work is really a key part of who we are. But we're trying to figure out how to make the conversation around what we do more than just oh, you guys are the ones who salvaged the RCA dome fabric. You know, we're trying to really see how, as a city, Indianapolis can see ourselves reflected in the work that we're doing. Because, are, go ahead. Are, are you doing any sort of marketing for it? I mean, it, it, how are you getting the word out that? that this exists and and is doing good we are well we have a um we have a a good social media team right now that is mostly made up of volunteers that's that's the other thing you know we have uh we're we're, we're really mostly a volunteer organization although i will make the point that we absolutely pay our designers who design the bags and the sewers who make them and that's been a critical component of our um identity is to pay people for design work so um, so we do do that, but, um, we are actually also, I just this morning was on a whole bunch of emails about, um, uh, a, a sort of, uh, fundraising party event that we're going to have that's coming up. And, um, we're planning that to try to get some of the people from the mayor's office, some of the sort of heavy hitters in the, the cultural world around Indianapolis to come and, uh, uh, make sure that they're aware of what we're doing now that we have a new headquarters where we have all of our fabric in the space where we actually work, um, we can, we feel like we can tell our story that much better. Yeah. So yeah. we're, we're bringing people out to the facility and showing them, look, this is what we do. This is how we deal with all of these materials that we're able to get. Um, and this is how then we, we bring it back out into the community. So one of the other jobs we're working on right now, and I think I'm allowed to talk about this one is, um, the uh, local, um, there's a college campus in town called IUPUI. It's an Indiana University, Purdue University co-location campus in the city. And they have a bunch of parking garages that were built in the 70s um, that are clad in cedar, um, these cedar boards. And those boards are being pulled off and replaced with aluminum. And the um, someone in the architecture office for Indiana University who we have been friends with, we meaning the, the People for Urban Progress nonprofit, um, came to us and said, what, would you guys have any use for all these boards? But and again, this is where you get into the sort of rules. Um, the procurement issues around these boards were that they were not allowed to sell them or give them to us, but we could use them on campus uh, in some other form. So we have designed some campus furniture that will be uh, using these recycled cedar boards and um, will be placed around the exterior plazas and whatnot around campus. So 
and again, we've brought in, in that case, we've brought in some young recent architecture graduates to be de contract designers for us um, to do the design work. Um, as a board member and a licensed architect, I will you know, take on a little of the, the sort of liability of making sure that they get built properly and installed safely um, and meet ADA and all those things. So, um, so yeah, that's a, a project that's coming this summer, we think. So not only are you doing the work yourselves, but you can facilitate other organizations and other businesses uh, on how to do what you're doing. Exactly. And I would say a lot of that just comes from, you know, from practicing. I mean, I practiced as a traditional yeah. architect for 15 years, so I know how contracts work. I know how institutions have to get things within, um, you know, the, within their funding schedules and their, their budget, annual budget year and how the, you know, th that's all just skill you learn from being an architect. <laughs> how difficult was it to to start people for urban progress when you have this idea. I mean, architects have, many of us have ideas like this. Oh, you know, I have this great idea, we can help people. How do you actually take it from an idea to something that actually succeeds? How do you take that first step? A lot of it has to do with funding, but, but and, and how do you do that? How do you get, get it funded to start it? But what are some of the first steps to get to a successful nonprofit that'll succeed like that? Well, I think there's a couple key ones. Um, one is you have to really have a good story. And I, you know, we obviously people for urban progress did. Um, two is you, we started with basically a loan from the founders where the, the founders said, um, and there were initially three founders, two of whom are still, uh, involved, um, said, we want to do this. So we're going to put up a few thousand dollars to, to give some startup capital. Um, but then the, uh, the really key aspect of this, and this is probably where most of uh, what many of your audience will understand or relate to, um, is we, everyone had to have another job to get things off, to get things off the ground, right? We all, everyone had yeah. other ways of bringing in income. So Michael Bricker is, um, he is also a, um, uh, film, what's it called? He, he does, um, set design and, and production design. He's a production designer for films. So he will disappear for two months at a time because he's on location filming. And during that time, he's making enough money that he can afford to be a minimally paid executive director for a nonprofit <laughs> during the next three months. And then he does it again. And I think lots of your listeners will, who have started their own architecture firms will, will, will um, understand this, that sometimes you have to keep your day job so that you can get that other thing going. And it just means, you know, you work after hours, you work on the weekends, we're all used to that as architects. Um, but if you really have that idea that you want to commit to something, you I mean, that's that when I committed to being on the board at People for Urban Progress, I told my husband and son, you know, I'm this means I'm going to be at, at meetings in the evening, and I'm going to be working on things during the weekend. And when we're, you know, going to get groceries, we might have to swing by the site where this project is going up so I can check on it. <laughs> you know, it really is about um, committing that that free time, basically, because you want to do it. Um, I think you have spoken with some entrepreneurs on your podcast who have said, yeah, I had a day job for six months or a year or whatever, while I got my other thing off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and a lot, a lot of us continue to do other things, right? You know, entree, entree architect is, you know, a side business to my firm. Exactly. Um, you know, it, and, <laughs> and I think it comes down to, to purpose and passion. You know, Absolutely. that, that yes, I'm, I'm a passionate architect. I love architecture. I want to be an architect, but sometimes other things pop into your life where you say, oh my goodness, this is my purpose. 
this, you know, architecture, I love it. It's my career, but my purpose is here. Um, and I, and I see people for urban progress the same way. There's passion there. There's, there's a purpose for doing that. It, it gives you a reason for waking up every morning and getting out there and making a difference. Um, I think a lot of entrepreneur architects are that way that, that they, that they love being an architect and some people, you know, they just love architecture and that they, they're all in on architecture. Sometimes they want to take architecture in a different direction, but they don't want to, like you said, you need to keep your day job. You need to you know, keep the, the, the money coming in, uh, but then go explore what you feel uh, can make the world a better place. Absolutely. And I think, um, um, I, again, I think I feel like architects are really um, primed to do this kind of work. Mm. Many of us, because yeah. we, we, we see the big picture of so many things, um, you know, and I, 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 I went and spoke to a high school class on a, like a career day. And one of them asked me what I was most proud of. And I said, you know, I think this, the, I've never done a skyscraper. I've never done, you know, a hospital. I've never done a big building that you would point to and say, wow, a cool building. Everything I've done has been very small, but I see that it affects people directly. And looking at the city and saying, I see my city and I see these little ways that I've in, made my community better. That's, that to me is what being an architect is about. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Are, are there any plans to expand people for urban progress? Is it, we, is it, it, it's, a, it's a great model for other cities. Yes. Is, have, have you considered that? We have spoken to a couple of other cities who are interested, yes. And I will say that at this point that we've had, um, we've got a lot of really great cheerleaders in the city of Indianapolis who have um, taken us under their wing in a way. Um, my uh, executive director, Michael, was at um, has been at a couple of mayors, what are they called, the Mayor's Conference for Cities events, you know, where, yeah. where someone from our city has taken him there and said he's got a great story to tell about our city. So I think the, the tourism uh, Visit Indie group in our city has has seen that we bring a great story and that we can export that story. So we have actually spoken to a couple of other cities. There's some people in uh, Denver and some people in Atlanta who know who we are. <laughs> we, you know, we we um, we have definitely talked about sort of franchising it out to other cities. So if we'll there's see. if there's somebody in the Indianapolis area that wants to get involved, how can they get involved? Uh, people up. Dot org is our website. We have a very active social media uh, Instagram account. Our the, the bags we make are so beautiful that we just take beautiful pictures of them and throw them up on social media all the time. <laughs> they're, you know, they're really well designed. That's the thing. It comes down to a really, it's not just, oh, here's a bag made of leftover materials. It's a really well designed um, series. We have um, computer laptop, uh, bike messenger bags. We have um, uh, workout bags. We have clutch purses. We made one little clutch purse that was specifically sized um, to bring into a stadium because at some stadium events, you know, they have limits on bag sizes. Yeah. <laughs> so we, um, and I always joke that my, my family of three owns 11 pup bags <laughs> because <laughs> they're just so many different ones and we love them all. So um, p finding us on social media is really the best way. We have volunteer days about every couple of months where we uh, reach out to the community and ask people to come and just volunteer doing things like helping to fold these enormous pieces of fabric that we have. Um, <laughs> we do, uh, yeah, we, it's, you know, mostly the social media channels. Yeah, so peopleup.org. Peopleup.org. Okay. Uh, or, I, I, um, I don't remember what our Instagram account is, but just People for Urban Progress. We'll, we'll find that, it. We'll, find we'll, we'll put a yeah. link to all of this on the show notes. It's uh, yeah. episode 174. So entrearchitect.com slash 
uh, episode 174, and we'll have links to all of this stuff. Uh, Donna, this has been great. I, I love your personal story, and I love the story of People for Urban Progress. Uh, very inspirational. I hope it inspires people to get involved in your organization, maybe uh, it inspires some people to sort of take their big idea that they have, because we all have a big idea, um, yes. to, to go do it. Um, and if you need help to sort of get to where you need to go to, you know, to, to, to get to that next level, reach out to us, reach out to Donna on Twitter, uh, Donna Sink, uh, Arch, A-R-C-H, uh, reach out to me on Twitter, Entre Architect, ask those questions. You know, that's, that's what the, I'm building this community of Entre Architect for that reason, to bring architects together, to make the world a better place so we can all succeed together. Um, and so reach out to us and ask your questions and we'll, we'll help you get there. If we don't know the answer, well, we know somebody who will get you that answer. So Donna, thank you very much for spending some time with me here. Before we wrap up, I want to ask my one final question to you. Um, what is the one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? I have to say it's that you have to say yes to things. Um, my, my former co-teacher for ProPractice, Wes Jans, who is a, now retired from Ball State, but is an architect um, and was an entrepreneur before he became a teacher. He always said, when, when students would ask him, how do we, like, how do we network? How do we, you know, get out there in the world? He would always just say, do interesting things. And I say to that, just, yeah, say yes to things that are interesting and seem like they might lead somewhere. Um, because networking is still so much of what we, how we build success with our firms is knowing people, knowing people that will tell other people that we are architects. <laughs> so sometimes you just have to say yes to things. Yes, I will serve on this PTA committee. Yes, I will join this board. Yes, I will volunteer for that park cleanup. Yeah, you know, the, you just say yes to all those things. Yeah, and, and, that's and, how you, and uh, yes to that big idea that's been gnawing in the back of your brain for all these years. <laughs> Um, because I know, exactly. yes. I, you know, there, you it, can't do the, it, it you takes take, a lot of courage to take that first step, but really that's all it is, is, is just take the first step. Uh, and sometimes that first step is just to reach out and ask a question. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. so yes. again, Donna's, uh, on Twitter, Donna sink arch, uh, Donna, thank you very much for sharing your knowledge here and inspiring us here at Entree Architect podcast. Thank Thank you for having me. It's always fun to talk about people for urban progress, especially. If you liked what we shared here today, I ask you to share it with a friend. I'm working on changing the world through design, and we can all do that together better as small firm architects when we're building a thriving, profitable business. So pick one friend that you think would benefit from this episode and share it with them. Complete show notes and a direct link to download this episode will be found at entrearchitect.com dot com slash episode 174 that's the link entrearchitect.com slash episode 174 share it with a friend hey and don't forget to visit the website to learn more about entree architect academy our private online membership program built for you the small firm entrepreneur architect you can build a better business so to learn more go visit the homepage at entrearchitect.com my name is Mark Arla Page, and I'm an entrepreneur architect, and I encourage you to build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.